Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Blending activism and entrepreneurship sounds like a delicate dance, but as a diversity and inclusion consultant and career coach, Michelle Kim is showing us how to make it happen, one uncomfortable conversation at a time. In this episode of Hack the Process, Michelle will explain why diversity training for startups is about more than just ticking a box on a form, how her own life experiences inspired her work with marginalized communities and individuals, and what she's doing to make sure the information and training products she's developing are effective, tested, and ready for the market. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Kim, as she is an activist and an entrepreneur who also does career coaching. Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, David? I'm great. And we were talking just before the interview started about all of the different things you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how do you introduce yourself these days? Because you are actually doing a lot more than what I just said. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually a tricky question. Like, I think that's the toughest question that I get asked. Like, what do you do? Because right now I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things. So I like to describe myself right now as an entrepreneur and activist. So entrepreneur because I've co-founded a company called Awaken, and that is a diversity and inclusion education startup that goes into different organizations to train different teams on diversity and inclusion issues that are grounded in social justice. And I'm an activist. I've been a social justice advocate and a grassroots organizer my entire life since I was in high school. And I'm still continuing to get involved in the community. I've been doing a lot of that now that I'm on my own. I have a lot more flexibility with my time. So that's how I've been spending a lot of my time. And like you mentioned, I also do career coaching on the side, primarily for women of color. So diversity and inclusiveness, what does that mean to you? I think diversity and inclusion, a lot of people think that diversity and inclusion means having a diverse set of people at an organization. So they like to... You know, what I call check the boxes. Who do we have on the team? But diversity alone doesn't guarantee inclusion, meaning you know, just because you have a diverse set of people in a team doesn't mean that they all feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to work. And it also doesn't mean that the entire company feels as though they are truly celebrating and embracing people's diverse backgrounds. So I really think of diversity and inclusion as two things that go hand in hand, but without one, the other can't really exist. I've heard that phrase, bringing your whole self to work. I'm really interested in how do you interpret that and how that's applied to you. You know, I think bringing your whole self to work is sort of the catchphrase that's been going around, especially in the tech industry, where people really interpret inclusion as your ability to bring your whole self to work. And I think more and more, you know, studies have found that millennials want to work for a company that they feel like they can bring their whole selves to work and feel some type of tie to the broader purpose and vision of the company. So long gone are days where people are coming to work nine to five just to pay the bills. They actually want to be able to throw their entire self to work and also find that they can thrive being there themselves. So for me, I think 
being my whole self at a workplace means, you know, being able to bring in a lot of the diverse backgrounds and experiences that I've had in my life without having to sort of cover myself. So there's a, this notion of covering where people have to check out certain parts of yourself outside the door of an office so that you can, you know, be perceived as a culture fit. That's another word that gets thrown around in the tech company, right? So I think being able to bring your whole self to work really means that you don't have to check any parts of yourself at the door when you're bringing yourself to work. So if that means that, you know, you have a sick child at home, your attention is not going to be fully there at, at a workplace and being able to talk about that openly and have a flexible workplace that could accommodate all of yourself so that you could truly thrive in a workplace. I think that's a, another one example well, that makes sense. And I'm going to guess that you have had personal experience of this, where you felt that you had to close off parts of yourself in the workplace. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I've experienced different aspects of that. So the flip side of inclusion is exclusion, right? Like, how does that actually feel when you are checking parts of yourself at the door when you're walking into a company? So I started my career right after college at a big management consulting firm. And I felt as though I had to be super professional, whatever that means these days, right? And you know, not truly be my whole self in that there are things that were tabooed for me to talk about, right? So you know, even if there are lots of things going on in the world that I feel really passionately about, it didn't feel appropriate for me to be able to talk about them. And I identify as being a queer woman of color. That identity for me has shaped a lot of my life experiences. But it also felt as though I couldn't truly go deep in talk, being able to talk and share my experiences in a workplace. Because, you know, when you're at work, you're only supposed to talk about what's relevant for your work. Whereas, you know, I think if you allow for your employees to be able to talk about a lot of the experiences that are impacting them, I think that actually gets people to be more engaged and also be able to fully bring who they are to what they do to, you know, really get people to open up. I can see the value, although it's an interesting conundrum because people think of the workplace as the place where you're going to go to do something for somebody else as opposed to that place where you're going to be fully yourself. But there are definitely benefits to being able to be fully yourself. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And, and, you know, there are so many different studies out there that talks about if you have a workforce that feel like they can bring their whole selves to work, the performance of the company goes up. There's also studies that shows that diversity has a direct correlation to the company's profitability and their ability to innovate quicker because they're bringing a lot of those diverse perspectives. But I think at the root of it, if you think about just being able to function instead of having this, I'm going to go into my workplace and survive. There's a lot of political trauma out there. Even if you don't want to acknowledge it, people are feeling distracted. People are feeling pain because of what's going on in this world. So if you can't actually name that and pretend like everything is fine once you open the office door and you go in and you're checking in with your manager and you're doing your job, but in reality, there's a lot of suffering in that office because a lot of people have been impacted by what is happening in our political climate, 
you know, it, it's really hard for people to be able to focus and just do the work, right? Put their head down and, and give their 110% to whatever they're doing because they're not going to feel like they can actually talk about what is bothering them. So, you know, I think the onus is on the leadership and the managers to be able to create a compassionate space for us to be able to talk about these tough topics. And unfortunately, you know, people say, we don't want to politicize the workplace. We don't want to bring politics into the workplace. But we all are, unfortunately, very much embedded into what is happening in the political system. Like, I can't not talk about the immigration ban when I myself is an immigrant. And, you know, I might be worried about my friends or my family being deported because they're undocumented. How do I not care about that? How do I not politicize my being when it impacts my life so directly? So I think, you know, those are some of the conversations that I've been engaging with a lot of different companies and managers who are, frankly, just at a loss because they don't know they have not been trained to be able to talk about certain things without what they would worry about causing more problems or bring the politics into the workplace. So, you know, one of the things that we at Awaken, we try to do is arm people with those more tactical, practical tools to be able to engage with their, with each other, with their team, to be able to have some uncomfortable dialogues but with compassion and also criticality. And you know, these dialogues do definitely make people uncomfortable. It's part, part of the nature of it. But I think some people feel that they have the privilege of not having to be political in all the parts of their life, whereas other people don't have that privilege. Exactly, exactly. If you are able to not engage in, quote unquote, uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable spaces, then that choice in and of itself is a privilege that many people don't have. Now, you've been doing this for a long time, and it sounds you started in high school. I'm curious how, how you got started in this. What, you know, was there an instigating moment? So I think about this all the time. Like, how did I get involved in this? My political activism started in high school when I came out as queer, and I started to really delve into LGBT equality issues, things that are impacting LGBTQ youth. But really, I think the journey started a lot younger. So I grew up in Korea. So I immigrated to the States when I was 12. I experienced a lot of things that I think some folks didn't have to experience. So things like, you know, growing up in a divorced family. And in back in Korea, growing up, divorce wasn't a common social norm, right? It's not a social norm. It's, it's actually fairly stigmatized. So growing up in a single mother household, seeing her struggles as a woman, as a single mother, you know, that primed me to see some of the social injustices that are happening in the world. Coming to the States, my dad was undocumented for 10 years. So seeing how he struggled through his undocumented status, and just as an immigrant being perceived as the other, even though he's worked really, really hard to be where he is, I think I just was exposed to a lot of struggles that people have to endure because of their identities and their social status. You know, I've always had this fire in me about, you know, I want to do what's right. I want to help people. I want to, you know, help my family. I want to fight for justice. And actually recently, a few years ago, I found out that my grandfather was a very prominent activist in Korea. And I didn't know that growing up. So 
I feel like I am sort of living my heritage and my roots <laughs> a little bit. That got me chills when I found out that my grandpa was actually very involved in the the Korea's independence movement. So they, when they got their independence from the Japanese colonization era, he was at the forefront of that movement, which was really neat. Oh, that is so exciting. And clearly you come by your activism naturally. <laughs> it's in my blood, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> who are some of the people who are really doing amazing things in your field? I love following Leslie Mack, who is the founder of Safety Pinbox. So what they do is they provide very actionable, tactical things that allies can do to support marginalized communities, especially uh, the, the folks of color and black and brown communities. And she is amazing on Twitter. So I recommend everybody follow Leslie Mack. Also a huge fan of Kimberly Bryant, the co-founder or founder of and CEO of Black Girls Code, providing opportunities and access to black girls and young women to be able to get into the STEM field. My personal inspiration is Erica Huggins. So I don't know if folks are familiar with Erica Huggins, but she was a former leader of the, the Black Panthers. And she was a guest speaker at a conference that I went to this year, earlier this year. And she has some amazing wisdom to share in terms of doing social justice activism and, and bringing folks in, calling in versus calling out and really leading with compassion and love. So I recommend everybody check her work out as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about what calling in versus calling out means? I, I love that phrase. I'm just, how can people understand that? Yeah, so there's a lot of calling out happening and for good reason. So calling out usually is when somebody makes a mistake or says something that is not completely, I would say, aware or critical to the work that they're doing or things that they're describing, then I would correct them by calling them out on, hey, this is something that you said that wasn't great, that wasn't appropriate, or that hurt my feelings. And there's also this idea of dragging meaning you are really trying to make an example out of somebody's mistake by publicly shaming them. So, you know, look at this person's mistake. Like, oh, uh, you fucked up and uh, I am superior or I'm at some type of moral superiority. I have moral superiority because I was able to, you know, be more critical. So there's this game that people play in the social justice world where, you know, the more critical you are, the more, you know, the more woke you are, the more superior you are in that sort of the, the plane of being socially conscious. And calling in, as opposed to calling out, I feel is done a little bit with more compassion. So when you are calling somebody in, you have the intention of not disposing that person from the movement, but rather you are doing the education with compassion so that you are bringing them into the fold. So you are you know, building the movement together, but also holding folks accountable for mistakes that they made and really recognizing that impact they may have had or the harm that they may have caused other folks. But you're doing that with a little bit more of a, a compassionate lens. That is a really useful distinction. And I, I could see that helping to ease people through some of those uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, when, you, when you got started back in high school, I mean, what sorts of things were you doing? How did you get the ball rolling with this orientation? Yeah. So when I, and I don't know what other people's experiences been, because everybody has a different coming out story, right? Everybody has a different coming of age story. And when I first realized that, hey, I may not be straight. So I had my first crush on a girl when I was, I think, 16 or 17. And I was really confused. So I identify as queer and bisexual. So I date both men and women and people who are not falling into the gender binary. 
And I was really confused. So I was introduced to a support group on campus. So I'm really lucky that our high school even had a support group for LGBTQ students. And from there, I just started learning a lot of the the things that I had no idea existed. The world of queerness, (laughs) the rainbows and unicorns and glitter. And I ended up going to this queer youth leadership camp. It was a program over at UC Santa Barbara where I got to meet other queer students and mentors and young adults, so college students, who were gathered to really empower the students who attended the camp. So there I learned about youth activism, what I could do, and some of the issues that are facing the queer community. And I just started getting really passionate about social justice through the lens of queer activism. And there's loads of anecdotes that I can tell you and how I caused trouble when I was in high school. (laughs) I was in and out of the principal's office all the time for staging demonstrations and protests of all sorts. And, you know, I I lived in San Diego. I went to school in San Diego. And San Diego is a pretty conservative city in California, I would say. I mean, it's better than probably other states. But still, San Diego, I think, is more Republican and conservative than other cities. And my school also had some, you know, conservative-leaning parents who kept calling the the principal's office whenever I did something. (laughs) (laughs) But I was a straight-A student, and I knew that I wasn't going to get kicked out of school, so I kept doing it. So, yeah, I I think I I just started organizing with students, and from there, I got really passionate about empowering other youth. So when I went to college in Berkeley, I decided to start a student organization, what is now called Queer Student Union, back in 2007. And I started doing a lot of youth and on-campus activism in college, too. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, it sounds to me like you took your outsider status as an immigrant, as a person of color, as a woman, and as queer. And you really turned it to your advantage and found ways to help empower others with what you were doing. Yeah, I think really what I'm passionate about is enabling people to have the voice that they may not be aware of. Because I was not aware that I had this power, that I could speak up because I grew up hearing from my parents, you know, just put your head down, work really hard, don't make any noise, and just be grateful for what you have. And I quickly realized when I was interfacing with, you know, other folks, other marginalized folks, and also just observing my parents and their struggles, the way that they were treated in society, I just felt like that wasn't the right process for me. And I felt so humbled and empowered when I met other youth activists and seeing how much they could do to fight for themselves, but for others. I was really inspired to do the same for from our folks. And, you know, nowadays, I still love working with youth. And I think we actually have a lot to learn from youth. So I love you know, sort of giving other people who have great stories to tell the platform to be able to advocate for themselves and the resources and access that they need to, you know, really get their voices heard. It is an amazing time for activism. There's no question youth are out there leading the way and inspiring all of us. But (laughs) as you were getting started with it, it sounds to me like it wasn't the sort of thing that you could just start by yourself and then go out and do it. Connecting with other people, connecting with other activists, sounds like it was a big part of the process as you were getting started. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in community building. I don't think that I, I could have done anything that I have achieved in my life without the help of other people. And I always want to you know, advocate for more coalition building, more solidarity building, you know, more community building, and also learning from 
you know, other people who've paved the way. So I think sometimes I see a lack of intergenerational conversation happening. And I think there's a lot to be learned from our elders and from our youth. And I think just making sure that we're always talking and bridging the gap between generations, between, you know, different racial communities and organizing communities, no matter what the tactics of organizing is, if we can all come together around the common goal of you know, doing social justice work, we could build more of a power collectively. It sounds to me like you might have had some intergenerational relationships and mentors along the way who helped. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think something that I'm seeing a lot of since the election is there are a lot of people who are just waking up to the reality that many people have been living in for a very long time. So people who thought we were post-racial, people who thought that we were way past, you know, some of the, the injustices that happen still today, they think that it's way in the past. And since the election and since the, the events that have occurred since the election, a lot of people are now waking up to this reality that many of us have been living in and they want to do something, right? People are now feeling this new sense of motivation to be more engaged, to contribute to the social justice activism movement. And they, you know, there, there are lots of conversations happening and there are a lot of people getting hurt. By then, I mean, a lot of people who are eager to help jump in are making mistakes. And people who've been doing this work for a very long time, they have this sense of where have you been? <laughs> and now that you're here, you're trying to take charge and you're making mistakes, you're pissing people off, you're saying the wrong things. And some people who are observing are getting scared. They don't want to engage too publicly because they don't want to say the wrong things. They don't want to seem stupid. They don't want to seem ignorant because they realize they have a lot to learn, but they have this sense of you know, wanting to help and contribute to the movement. That's why the slogan that we have for Awaken is creating a compassionate space for uncomfortable conversations. Because for us, the only way for us to move forward is to truly understand that being socially conscious and being engaged is a journey. There's no one who mastered this. There's no one who knows it all. And in order for us to create incremental change, we need to meet people where they are with compassion, but also criticality. So we want to hold people accountable for, you know, their action, but we also want to create a space where people can ask questions without fearing, you know, retaliation or seeming ignorant, right? Because there are people who are well-intentioned, well-meaning, who want to do good. They just haven't had the mentorship that I had and the years of making mistakes and being called out, called in <laughs> that I had at this point. So the the mission that we have at Awaken is that, you know, we want to create that space for people. Also recognize that some people have to do this work and that this extra emotional labor <laughs> that's going to go into educating people and creating that incremental change. But I think as somebody who's straddled both the nonprofit social justice world and the corporate world and the tech world, I have a good sense of how we can have that conversation with both the, the criticality of the, the work intact um, and the compassion that we need to have to bring people into the movement. Now, that's absolutely one of the unique angles that you bring to, to the situation is that you are combining activism and entrepreneurship. And those are two words I don't think a lot of people put together, but it, it recognizes in my mind the fact that, you know, operating within the system while still trying to change the system is it's critical. I'm curious how you started blending those two. You know, it really started out from my frustration with the existing DNI work in the corporate world. 
in the for-profit world too. So, you know, this DNI, diversity and inclusion, has become this fancy marketing slogan that all of these companies want to tout. And there's a huge appetite for things like unconscious bias training. You know, there's Google and Facebook. They've really popularized the idea of unconscious bias training for all people. And I've also experienced, you know, quote unquote, leadership training and manager training, DNI training throughout my career in both management consulting and tech. And what I've experienced is all these diversity and inclusion trainings that just scratch the surface and they don't go deep enough to make people feel uncomfortable. So my whole thing is if you've sat through a DNI training and didn't feel uncomfortable once throughout that training, then there's something wrong with that DNI training. Because diversity and inclusion, talking about identities, race, power, privilege, these things are not meant to be comfortable because it challenges us. But we don't learn un- unless we are challenged. And we, in those moments of discomfort is when I feel the most growth happens in people. That sounds like that makes for an awkward sales pitch, though. <laughs> You'd be surprised. People who who know what I'm talking about in terms of the, yes, like I've sat through many, many DNI trainings and they just scratch the surface and people leave the room and no change happens because now they have either normalized the fact that everybody has unconscious biases or people don't have a fundamental shift in the way that they perceive the world or think about diversity and inclusion. And so when I talk to people who are really serious about creating change in their organization and the fact that, you know, we need to go deep and we're not afraid to create that compassionate space for uncomfortable conversations to really fuel growth in people and to create lasting, sustainable change in people's hearts and minds, then, you know, the reaction that we've been able to get from companies that are actually serious about doing this work for real change has been pretty positive versus, you know, definitely there are companies that come to us like, oh, we just we just want to have an unconscious bias training. We don't want to talk about X, Y, Z things that made people uncomfortable. Then, you know, the great thing about being my own boss is also that we get to choose who we work with because we definitely don't want to be in a situation where we're just checking the box for companies. Right. We don't we're not interested in just going in and doing a you know, surface level workshop and having people check the box where they can say, OK, we've done unconscious bias training. So now we're you know, now we're woke. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm curious how you build this up as a business practice, because it sounds like you've got both the consulting that you're doing for companies as well as the coaching that you're doing for individuals. But starting with the consulting that you're doing for companies. This is something that you've uh, you've had to build up a client list for, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're still in a very early stage building this company. We were founded officially in February of this year. So very, very new. But because of our unique approach and the DNI community in especially in the tech world is is pretty small. And <laughs> there are a lot of folks doing really great things, but word travels really fast. And I think also because there is this gap in the current DNI market where, you know, there is not a lot of players going super deep in these topics that are well known and that geared towards tech companies with that social justice foundation. So I think our product and services are differentiated in that way. So the way that we've been able to you know, get new clients is really through referrals from people who've worked with us, who've been really inspired by the work that we do, really see the differentiating factors. 
And also I've been doing some writing recently. So doing some of that, sharing my knowledge and, and experiences, personal take on how I think DNI training should be and should look like, that's also generated some interest in the market, which I, I find very exciting. I think you also do some public speaking too, is that right? That's right. Recently, I spoke at two different events at UC Berkeley, one at the Lavender Graduation Ceremony to the graduating class of 2017 talked about my journey as an entrepreneur, as an activist, and I also spoke with the Women's in, uh, Leadership Institute of Berkeley. So yeah, I've been doing some speaking. That's, that's also another way for us to spread the, spread the word about the work that we're doing. I think that I can include a link to one of those presentations in, your, in the show notes for this episode as well. Awesome. Yeah. And we're actually also going live, doing a live workshop session with Creative Live, October 30th and 31st. So folks who are interested in what we do, but not quite sure if they're ready to really work with us yet can check us out on Creative Live because we're going to be doing a public live recorded session on October 30th and 31st. Oh, that's awesome. Creative Live has amazing studios. And I know that for people who might be confused by the name, you don't have to catch it live in order to get it because you can subscribe later and see the same episode rebroadcast in the, in the future. That's right. Yeah. I, another thing that we've been doing that got us much better SEO results <laughs> is doing events with General Assembly. So General Assembly and Awaken have been partnering for the last few months to put out public workshops for individuals. So you don't have to be a part of a company. If you're interested in learning more about diversity and inclusion topics, then you know folks could come to one of our public workshops at General Assembly. As we talked about before, you've also been doing coaching for individuals as well. How does that play out? Yeah, so I have just felt like I've been really lucky in terms of being able to have access to different types of mentors and the job opportunities that I've had since graduating from college that a lot of women of color and folks in the marginalized communities don't necessarily have access to. So I wanted to share everything that I've learned with the communities that I think could use that knowledge and access most. So I've always been passionate about, you know, helping people learn the right language to be able to really market themselves and to navigate the, the workplace. So I work one-on-one -on -one with a lot of folks who identify as women, women of color, people of color, to help them rebrand themselves, craft their narratives, negotiate, and just get on the path of a more fulfilling career and to truly thrive instead of just, you know, getting by or surviving or, you know, only dreaming to the extent of the opportunities that they believe are possible for them. That's interesting. I'm, I'm curious what you've seen is different about the way that people from marginalized communities approach this, what they need to bring out. Yeah. And, you know, this has been really interesting for me being a career coach. I work with a lot of different types of people. And, you know, the difference that I see between my white clients and my people of color clients has been really making me sort of live through a lot of the research that's out there, right? So, you know, a lot of the times when I get clients who are white, they are looking to earn more money. So let's say I had a client who kind of came to me and it's like, you know, I'm making this much right now. I feel like I could do a lot less work and make a lot more at a different company. How do I do that? 
versus I have a client who is a woman of color who's graduating from a really renowned institution with a master's degree telling me, you know, I am so afraid to even say the amount that I am imagining because it feels too much. And the amount, I promise you, was not a lot. <laughs> so I think, you know, women of color, we have a lot of internalized doubts and internalized sexism, internalized racism that we need to unlearn to be able to redefine what it is that we can dream for ourselves. Really being able to identify our relationship with money, for example. A lot of people don't feel comfortable asking for more money or really thinking that they deserve to earn more. And so that contributes to people not being able to ask for more. So I can talk about negotiations tactics all day, all day long, but if you really internally don't believe that you deserve it, then how are you going to advocate for yourself, right? So there's a lot of unlearning that I do with my clients and teasing out some of the, the blockers in their lives that they haven't really paid attention to and also creating access for them, right? Helping them understand that, hey, these are some of the paths that are available. Because unless you have exposure to, say, the tech world or the for-profit world, some people who've never been exposed to that community don't know what's available or don't know what the opportunities are even. So for me, being able to articulate some of those opportunities is just give them the real deal. Like here are the types of jobs that are out there that you could you could get. You don't have to go for, you know, the, the entry level, low paying job because people just don't know that they can get other things too. You know, I'm not saying that those entry level jobs are not great, but I also want to give agency to people to be able to make more informed decisions, knowing what is available and what they can get if they were to say the right things, if they were to be able to brand themselves in a certain way, such and such that I think a lot of people with privilege, people who grew up with certain family upbringings have been learning all their lives that, you know, I personally didn't have exposure to until I went to college. It's interesting. You talk about giving people agency. And of course, you've taken a great deal of agency in your own career by leaving the work for somebody else market and going off and becoming an entrepreneur. I'm curious how that came about for you. You know, I've always wanted to be my own I don't be my own boss or, you know, start something of my own, not because, you know, oh, I want to be my own boss one day, but really I, I struggled a lot with working for companies that I felt weren't aligned with my values. So I always wanted to start my own company so that I could run a company grounded in my own principles and my values. Like, you know, I want to pay people really well and I want to treat people with respect. I want to create an environment where people can bring their whole selves to work. So I've always been motivated by you know, my desire to create an organization, almost like an alternative reality, where I can prove that you can have a profitable business and treat people well. And, you know, I, I've also had a lot of toxic experiences throughout my career that have you know, made me even more motivated to one day start my own journey of being an entrepreneur. And so when the time was right for me to be able to start my own thing, I, I decided to jump and make that decision, which was scary. And I also realized it's a tremendous amount of privilege and luxury even for me to be able to do this right now because I have the cushion that, I, that enabled me to make that jump that a lot of people don't have. 
So, you know, some of the things that I read about, you know, in terms of entrepreneurship, people starting their own business, I think a lot of the information out there assumes that all you need to do is believe in yourself and take that risk. And I think that's a really incomplete picture, especially for people coming from lower income backgrounds or people who with family responsibilities. Because I, you know, my primary motivation for getting a job in the for-profit world after college was to support my mom. So I immigrated her from Korea to the States and I'm supporting my family financially. So it wasn't even in my realm of possibilities for me to, you know, quit my job and start something and just bootstrap and not have money to survive because I had dependents that I needed to take care of. You know, I think I, I needed to have a strategy for me to be able to do what I'm doing today. So I wanted to save up a lot of money so that I could A, support my family and myself and be financially independent and B, one day be able to pursue my real passion of bringing social justice into the workplace, but also going back to my grassroots activism world. And so it wasn't an easy decision. It was definitely, definitely took more than just you know, starting something out of my garage <laughs> and not having a full-time job. So yeah, I think I also want to just make sure that that is something that people recognize that, you know, being able to pursue and do your own thing, a lot of times require a certain amount of privileges. It certainly does. And the difficulty though, when creating something like that, I'm curious whether you had any coaching or mentoring that helped walk you through that process yourself. You know, I've been following a lot of just entrepreneurs in general, just reading about how other people got started. Anybody in particular? Of course, I listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast, <laughs> just being able to start your own thing on the side. So my co-founder also actually was an entrepreneur before she started to do this with me. So she, she was a successful entrepreneur before she decided to take a job at a startup where we met. So just having people in my circle with that experience, also it goes back to exposure, right? Just being exposed to people who are doing it, that also helped lessen my fear. So, you know, oh, those people are doing it, I could do it too. So I think just learning from these people. And also, I think another thing that helped me was knowing that I could always go back. So if something doesn't work out, then, you know, the, the worst case scenario for me, because I'm in a privileged position of being able to get a job because of my skill sets that I built up in the last whatever multiple years that I was in the, the workforce in tech, I'm fairly certain that I will be able to go back to the workforce and get a job. I don't think that everybody can say that because of, you know, lack of experience or the network and the privilege that they may not have that I have. So again, I think it's a calculated risk that I'm taking. But now that you've created this business for yourself, what is it structured like and how, how are you building your business? If we're talking about Awaken, right now we're in the stage of making sure that all of our service offerings are rock solid. So we're testing our materials through public forums like General Assembly. We're getting feedback, we're iterating. So we're always in the mindset of test and iterate and then we listen to the market. So we talk to a lot of different companies who are interested in different types of workshops. We hear their frustrations, their problems, their challenges, and we're always listening to the feedback to, you know, feedback into our product development. And because of my background in customer success and professional services, you know, I, I've learned from a lot of different cases the importance of funneling your customer feedback and the, the client demand directly into the service offerings and testing that in an iterative way. 
I think that's number one, just making sure that our content and offerings of the services are what the market wants and it's differentiated. And then I think the, the another thing, number two, is building the brand awareness. We talked about that a little bit before, just the really beyond referrals, uh, doing other things to spread the word around Awaken, who we are, what we do, how we're differentiated through content, through you know speaking engagements, through podcasts, um, all kinds of things. So building that brand awareness has also been something that's been um, critical to our growth. You know, the last thing is we are really focused on scalability. So how are we going to really scale our our services? Because being a services company, you know, unlike being a SaaS company, the scalability is really something that we have to grapple with. So we're now tapping into different network of facilitators and also toying with the idea of some type of online learning experience. But we're trying to do that really thoughtfully because doing DNI training in a in-person environment where people can sit with their discomfort, can navigate through detention with facilitators. That's been really a primary benefit of having in-person trainings and workshops. So, you know, we're working with companies like Creative Live to really understand how do we bring some of these elements to the online platform so that we can scale and, you know, bring our learning to more companies that may be constrained because of their budget or time and resources. I, I love that you're going out and you're experimenting with different media, with all of the different media that are available. And I'm really curious, could you tell me about the logistics of how you analyze and evaluate the success or failure of something? A couple of things. So we always do, uh, we always conduct feedback sessions after a workshop has been completed. So it could be in the form of a survey or a form. So we get direct feedback from people who are in the room. We also work with companies to create tailored, customized assessment methods to really measure the success as we define together with a customer in the beginning. So when we engage with a company and we are working directly with the clients, people have different ways of measuring success and what success looks like. And some people may already have some benchmark data that we can work with um, in terms of measuring inclusion. I actually just wrote a blog post about, you know, how somebody can measure inclusion quantitatively. So we designed very carefully how we are going to assess the value that we bring with our education. If a company is engaging with us for a longer term program that could last between six to nine months or even longer, we make sure to do the assessment before we engage with the program. Once again, in the middle and final assessment takes place at the end of the program. I love that. You're building the testing and evaluation right into the process so that it's embedded and it's part of what you're doing. Absolutely. That's awesome. So you were telling me a little bit about your business process and how you and your co-founder work together. Yeah. So one tip that I like to share with folks is something that we do on a weekly basis. So when we meet every week, we make sure to talk about three things that we want to celebrate from last week and three things that we must accomplish this week. So that helps us really focus on the, the things that we need to accomplish, but also gives us some time to reflect and celebrate small wins that we have along on, along the journey. Because, you know, being an entrepreneur, being our own bosses, it's great and it's fun, but it could also be very stressful and taxing. And we want to make sure that we take the time to celebrate our wins so we don't burn out. On that topic, I'm curious what you do to take care of yourself and keep yourself sane in this process. Ooh, that's a great question. I also blogged about self-care because I think it's a really hot topic and relevant for everybody who is living in this politically traumatizing <laughs> era. You know, I have a, I keep a list. 
So I call it my own self-care toolbox. So one of the things that I, I think is really important for us to ask ourselves, actually this tip came from my friend Rich Russo, who's a, the founder of Elephant in the Room. He's also a diversity and inclusion consultant, is to ask yourself, when do I know that I need self-care? Because when you really need to do self-care, by the time you realize, oh my gosh, I'm so burnt out, it's probably a little late. You know, you, can, you should still do self-care, but how do you make this into an active process that you can recognize with a small sign that you, you see in yourself, okay, it's time for me to take care of myself a little bit. So I think asking that question, number one, is really important. So when do you know you need self-care? And when you feel like you need self-care, what do you do? You need to have a lot of different options. Um, self-care looks very different for everybody, and it looks different depending on what types of situations you're in. So I have a list of 51 things that I can do when I realize I need self-care. So that I sounds so like you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I just look at my notes and I don't have to think about what I need to do, right? Because I have 51 options that I can look at. And depending on the situation, I can quickly assess what needs I have and practice self-care. Because sometimes the hardest thing is figuring out what to do to take care of yourself. I can see that. Do you also have like habits and routines that you follow? Habits and routines I follow. So I... I'm a boxer, so I love boxing. It's a great way for me to release some of my stress and pent up energy. So I try to do something active every day. So it could be going to a boxing class or it could just be taking a walk. So that's something that I, I try to practice every day, just even 30 minutes every day to get some of that energy out physically. As a team, we celebrate after every event by doing a little dance. <laughs> I can't show you through the podcast, but if you go through some of our workshops, you'll see us dancing afterwards with facil other facilitators. And we also do a quarterly retreat and offsite. So me and my co-founder make sure we dedicate a full day to talk about our business strategy and longer term vision. After each retreat, we do something fun to celebrate or, or work together. That's lovely. So you're building in the reward process as part of what you're doing. That's right. That's right. And we're hoping that that also gets infused throughout our culture as we grow our company. Hopefully when we hire folks in the future, that culture of celebrating wins and taking care of ourselves and bringing our whole selves to what we're doing and being grounded in our own values, something that we really prioritize. So we always talk about what are our values individually and how do they show up in the company and what are our company values? And how do we make sure that those things get infused throughout the company and in the way that we do business with ourselves and with other people? And that's very forward thinking because when the company grows, you're going to want to be prepared for that. Exactly. I think one of the mistakes that people make, especially startups, is thinking that culture can grow organically. But culture is something that you need to build and cultivate intentionally with a lot of thoughtfulness and care especially as startups, when they grow fast, with that rapid growth, you can really lose the culture that you wish to build by not being intentional about it. So being really clear and thoughtful about, you know, what behaviors are you seeking in your employees and your team? And what are the values that are driving those behaviors, being able to articulate those things? It's a tough practice. I think a lot of people think that culture is this fluffy thing that you can just sort of let happen. I've seen personally where that can go wrong. And I think in particular for, for marginalized people, that's sort of a position that people with privilege can take for granted. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, if you are a person with a lot of privileges, then your default is to be comfortable in the state of being privileged. 
And actually for us to make progress towards social justice, we need to break that cycle of comfort. And giving up your privileges or even recognizing your privileges takes discomfort and tension. And you know, that's the hard thing to do. But I'm hopeful that more and more people as they see you know, how it's not about your personal experience, more so than it's a, it's a systematic injustice that we need to all recognize. So I think more people who are willing to recognize our privileges and disrupt that cycle of oppression, the better chance we have in dismantling the entire systemic oppression that we have. Very hopeful thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. But without hope, where are we going to go? <laughs> I love that. Well, so I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening are going to want to find out how to get in touch with you, either for coaching or for consulting with their companies. Where should I direct people? How should people find you? So our Awakens website is www.visionawaken.com. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. And for my own journey, so if you are interested in working with me in the coaching capacity, or if you want to be more involved in social justice activism, you can check out my personal website, michellekimconsulting.com. And there you can find links to my blog on Medium and also on my personal website as well. And you can always reach out via email. That's excellent. And I can personally recommend following you on Twitter because you, you post some amazing stuff. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story with my listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.